Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Halper. And I'm Mary Matte. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Useful Idiots podcast is our website where you can support the show and get bonus content. And Katie, you know, we're well known for being a irreverent show about politics, but we also bring people their one-stop shop for all their cultural needs. Exactly. And you've just seen something that you think is of interest to yeah. our audience. I did. I did indeed. So on Sunday, I went to La Mama, which is a great venue, uh, usually, and I saw something called Chernobyldorf. Yeah, Chernobyldorf, it's called. It really rolls off the tongue. It really rolls off the tongue. Chernobyldorf. Yes. An archaeological opera in seven novels. Um, and I found it a bit insufferable. The uh, synopsis is, after surviving a series of disasters, the remaining descendants of humanity find themselves in a post-societal world following the death of capitalism, opera, and philosophy, Wandering amongst the ruins of nuclear power plants, abandoned churches, theaters, and, in gala- and galleries, they try to recreate lost civilization through archaeological performance rituals, universal symbols, and signs which are ultimately misinterpreted and gradually dissolve into the white noise of nature. What was interesting is that at the beginning, um, someone from the production introduced it and mentioned that they live next to a country of a hundred million people who want to exterminate them. And then at the end, they held a, an American flag and a Ukrainian flag. And I missed this, but the friend who I went with told me that they also held up a, uh, black and red Banderite flag. Oh, okay. Yeah. That Nazi collaborator Bandera, um, and father of the ultranationalist, uh, Ukrainian movement that uh, the U.S. is very much behind today. Yeah. Um, that's really fitting. You know, and that's going to be a hit with uh, a liberal New York theater yeah. crowd because, you know, neo-Nazis and Ukraine are our current allies. Um, you know, I had a somewhat similar experience going to like a, a liberal, I mean, tangentially related. I went to like a, I went to the debut performance of a Broadway show that came, it was like last year, I think. And it was based on the story of Reality Winner. Uh, Reality Winner was the NSA contractor who leaked what she thought was some really explosive information about so-called Russian interference. I've gone over this before. The evidence that she had actually showed uh, the opposite of what I think she and many other people who believed in Russiagate uh, thought it said. But regardless, this Broadway show was like about basically like the the theme of it was basically this brave whistleblower had exposed Russian interference and yet she was persecuted by our government for it because she was imprisoned for right. for leaking. And the show is basically, it's entirely based on transcripts of her initial interrogation by the FBI. That's it. It's just like they, they, they took the transcript and made a play out of it. And, you know, it wasn't like horrible, but like underneath this whole thing was like, you know, wow, like finally the truth about Russian interference is being told and uh, it just was sad because you know, Rally Winter went through a lot and had a terrible experience, but she was made into this martyr over a fake thing, which was Russian right. interference. And so I was in a crowd full of like really excited theater goers who right. you know, didn't feel the same as me. And it was pretty awkward. I'm glad they didn't know you were there because those theater goers would probably have attacked you. I, I could have gotten beat up. It could have been mob violence. The first yeah. ever mob violence at a Broadway show. Yeah. You know, beaten with canes and, uh, yeah. Handbags and all binoculars. Those things. Yes. Binoculars, yeah. 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 Although I guess yeah. it's more for opera and ballet. But yeah. Programs. You could have been swatted with Oh programs. yeah. Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I really dodged a bullet. Yeah, you did, yeah. 
we have a great show for you today. We have two guests. We have Maoz Inon, an Israeli peace activist whose parents were killed on October 7th, tragically. And we have journalist Asa Winstanley, who is talking about uh, some very important reporting about what Israel did on October 7th. And it's very underreported. And he also talks about being smeared by the Washington Post for his important reporting. It's a useful idea. It's double header. Double today, header, yeah. And it's yeah, a great it's really one. Good. Yeah. So should we do the four basic food groups? Let's do it. What do we have for Democrats suck? Ivey. Okay. So for Democrats suck, uh, AOC recently was on a podcast called I've Had It, which is hosted by Jennifer Welch and Angie Pumps Sullivan. Uh, the podcast describes itself as a, quote, comedic feel-good podcast, which will expose you to all things you didn't know you've had it with. Mm. And Ocasio-Cortez joined the program to play a, quote, hilarious lightning round of had it or hit it. So let's take a look at this. Had it or hit it, Joe Biden. Hit it. You know, honestly, here's the thing. I think sometimes people want electoral politics to be, we overly identify with, it's like, if you vote for someone, they have to be the embodiment of you. And that's actually something that I think Donald Trump provided to a lot of people, where it's like, if you voted for him, and if you were a Donald Trump person, like you, you want, like it, it symbolized so much. But I think what we have here in this situation is a more just honest thing. There are plenty of things that the president does that I completely disagree with. Um, I think, you know, right now what's happening in Gaza, I can't, I, I just, I, I can't go on every single day seeing this. I don't associate myself with what's happening. But at the end of the day, um, we have to acknowledge that we we just can't allow this fascist movement to grow in this country. You know, it's people are going to get mad on the Internet because that's what they do. But I think we just got to be adults about the situation. So, I mean, I understand that AOC wants to vote for Biden instead of Trump and wants people to vote for Biden instead of Trump. But I don't know if you have to say you'd hit it. <laughs> I mean, it seems like a false um binary false dichotomy uh also she's sexualizing the president <laughs> well all i know is so the, the show is called i've had it right so i wonder i mean how much you want to bet that both these hosts like to you know let's say they're annoyed with each other sometimes how much i wonder how many times they've both thought about quitting and like which one is gonna be the first to say i've had it right you know that'd be a great way to leave a, a show called i've had True. it but yeah but look, I've look, had look, it with I've had it. I mean, I've had, I've had it, with, it with I've had it because I don't like to hit it or had it. Yeah. But what you know what AOC says? Uh, look, um, personally, you know how you vote is is a personal decision. What I don't like is like the disparaging of people on the internet. Like, is she not a person on the internet as well? Like, whenever you want to sort of denigrate someone's position, you just refer to them as oh, they're just on the internet. They're just terminally online, as opposed to like who? Like, you know, AOC is an an online influencer. I think actually. That's one of her most significant. That's one of the most significant aspects of her whole thing is like her, her ability to be an influencer online. And I'm, I'm not denigrating that, but I'm saying is, like, it's not just people on the internet who are mad about voting for Joe Biden. Uh, it's people who are not online but just can't reward someone who's supporting a genocide. Right. 
And I think if you're going to make the case for Biden, you have to at least acknowledge that. Acknowledge that. Or you could also pressure Biden to stop the genocide. There you go. I mean, I mean this idea that I love the vote shamers who are like speaking to this amorphous, countless anonymous crowd of people who are saying that they won't vote for him, trying to guilt them into voting for him, pressure them to vote for them. You know, you could spend all that time trying to pressure Biden to stop the genocide. Absolutely. If you really cared and you really saw Trump as an existential threat, that's what you'd be doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, there are people inside the Democratic Party who are standing up to Biden. And now it's pretty common when he speaks, he gets heckled by people urging him to demand a ceasefire and use the huge uh, leverage that the U.S. has over Israel, which he refuses to do. And this happened recently uh, at a speech that Biden gave in Virginia, um, you know, uh, in support of abortion rights, where he was interrupted multiple times by people calling him out. And we're going to watch the video, but first, he got an interesting uh, show of support, not from fellow Democrats, but from Republicans who support his uh, backing of the Israeli genocide. So look at how uh, this Republican Party account characterized the protests against Biden. So this is RNC research, and they say pro-Hamas members of the Democrat Party repeatedly interrupt Biden's campaign event in Virginia, Genocide Joe. And let's watch. So the reason I picked this for Republicans suck is because basically, rather than have an opposition party to the president who's against genocide, the Republicans are using this as an excuse to attack those who dare oppose the genocide. So they're standing with their Democratic president, Genocide Joe. They support his policy uh, in Gaza. They support the mass murder of Palestinian civilians. And they attack a few brave people in an audience who are willing to stand up to Joe Biden. So it just shows it's a uniparty in action. You know, sure, they have their differences with Joe Biden uh, on some issues, but when it comes to supporting this genocide, they're firmly in lockstep with him. So Republicans suck. Republicans suck. Well, I got to hand it to Joe Biden because he he's such a renaissance man that not only does he give a green light to genocide, but check out this clip of him responding to the hecklers because some people are on the balcony. Look, please don't jump. But I'm bum. So weird. Is he joking or does he actually think the person's going to jump? Is, is he making a joke? I don't know. I think it was it was viewed as a joke, but maybe he's being sincere. You never know with Biden. Because he can't fathom maybe the idea of somebody protesting his support for mass murder. So they must be suicidal and crazy. Right, I don't know. Exactly. I mean, maybe he's making a dark joke. Maybe. Unclear. Uh, it's a weird joke to make. Yeah. Or maybe he's speaking to his defenders. And he assumes they not only take a bullet for him, but jump off of a, <laughs> a balcony for him. Unclear. We may find another hint as to what his motives are in this other thing he said in his speech. Oh, let's this see. might shed some light on it. Don't mess with the women in America unless you want to get the benefit. What? Don't mess with the women of America. It's like what's he saying? Don't mess don't with the women of mess America. Mess with the women in America unless you want to get the benefit. Unless you want to get a benefit. Yeah, unless you want to get a benefit. Um, so maybe he's actually doing slam poetry, spoken word poetry. <laughs> maybe. Because I really don't understand that. And by the way, it's worth noting he's bringing up um, abortion, you know, one of the things that he's running on, although his party, of course, didn't codify uh, Roe v. Wade when they could have under his president, um, for whom he was vice president. 
But it's worth noting, uh, we covered this on Monday, that as a woman during a panel discussion with Margaret Brennan on Face the Nation pointed out, this young woman was saying that she was not going to vote for Biden because she's very pro-choice. Or This young woman was saying she wasn't going to vote for Biden because although she really cares about reproductive rights, and obviously Trump is terrible on that issue, she can't vote for someone who is forcing Palestinian women, speaking of reproductive rights, to have C-sections without anesthesia, uh, forcing Palestinian women to not have neonatal care because there's barely any hospitals to b- deliver at. So women are delivering um, in very dangerous conditions without doctors, without hospitals, and getting C-sections without anesthesia, which is an absolute, I mean, it's unbelievable. To think and about using, that. using tent scraps for their periods. For menstruation, yeah. Yeah, you know. Yes. Uh, um, yeah. Unbelievable. So if you care about women's rights, newsflash, if you care about women's rights, you should care when they're being um, massacred or forced to have C-sections and anesthesia or forced to use tent scraps as um, pads. All of that falls under the the rubric of women's rights, Joe. You know, you mentioned earlier uh, Joe Biden may be doing slam poetry. I wonder if a president can appoint themselves to be the poet laureate of the United States. Oh, yeah. Wouldn't that be cool if Biden that gave himself great. that honor? Yeah. You know, he's been a senator, a vice president, a president. Let, let's make Joe Biden poet laureate yeah. as well. Why not? Yeah, why not? Next state, stu- uh, next, uh, if he's inaugurated, he could do that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. What do we have for Isn't That Weird? For Isn't That Weird, we have a story about a Japan ANA plane turning around mid-flight after American passenger bites attendant. It's a bit of a mystery what happened, though. So according to a spokesperson for the airline, uh, a 55-year-old heavily drunk man bit into the arm of a crew member, leaving her mildly injured. Uh, He had to be restrained by crew members before being arrested after landing back in Tokyo. But the man claims that he didn't bite the flight attendant and that he claimed not to remember what happened because he had consumed a sleeping pill. Mm. Now, I feel like if you're going to say, I don't remember what happened because I took a sleeping pill, you can't say you didn't bite. You could have done the biting and not remember it. Sure. And if it was Ambien, there's a lot of evidence of people sleepwalking, sleep eating, so I think he should have just gone with the ambient offense. Like if if people bite down on food, why not bite down on people? <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm sorry to be a wet blanket, everybody, for those of you who like drinking on planes, but I'm a I'm an abolitionist when it comes to alcohol on flights. I don't get it. Like, um, you know, I enjoy a nice drink as much as anybody else, but uh, I don't think we need to drink on planes. It, it, I mean, look at the history. There's such a record of bad behavior because of alcohol on flights. And it's like, you're at, you know, 30,000 feet. You can't, you know, it's like, you can't really do much on a plane. You, you also need to be aware and something could go wrong. So I think we should maybe think about giving up alcohol on all these planes. I'm, I'm sorry to be a drip. You know, I realize people out there who like a nice drink in the sky, but I just don't, I don't, I don't see the payoff. And it, there's been so many bad things that happen when people drink on, on planes. I, I like that. If you ever run for office, maybe that could be your plank. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'd have to hide all my other political views, so this could be like my single-issue thing. Exactly, you know? yeah. And I bet yeah. there's single-issue voters out there yeah. who've had terrible experiences with drunk assholes on flights, and maybe right. you'd get, maybe you'd lock it in. Maybe Biden could run on that. Fair enough. There you go. That's free. 
free advice for Biden. But then Trump would probably run on like assassinating people who drink on flights. Mm, that's true. He would or executing that them. Yeah. He would. yeah. 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 So what do we got for Isn't That Terrible? For Isn't That Terrible, the uh, Burlington City Council recently held a, uh, a meeting about the Gaza genocide. And someone who supports the Gaza genocide made a pretty funny error. And I would like to use the rest of my time to say how appalled I am that people are bringing up the Holocaust. Do not use other genocides to describe this one. I have been... I Oh. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> well, uh, she does not want you to use other genocides to describe this genocide. And uh, when she realized that she had said that out loud, she rightfully got very embarrassed. What was she planning to say? I don't know. I mean, but, but that's what she said. She blurted out that this was a genocide and she doesn't like people talking about other genocides. Right, right. right. <laughs> I see. Yeah, one. right. It was a Freudian yeah. slip, perhaps. Yeah. It, yeah. it was a huge Freudian slip. Yeah. And, uh, you know, look, it's impossible to, to laugh uh, in this h horrible moment of a genocide. But well, apparently um, not because we just but, did. But. but we just did it at this one because. Uh, but she's a, the butt a, of the joke, obviously. She certainly is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I mean, that was amazing. That she, she looks like almost like a tampon that she put in front of her face. A, or her cue cards. Her cue card, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which she wasn't reading off of properly, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But uh, anyway, that's the message. Ripped up tampon, yeah. That's the message out there, everybody. Don't use other genocides to describe this one. I would uh, say don't use other genocides to justify another genocide. Hey. Which is what a lot of people are doing. Amen. Implicitly or explicitly. They certainly are. Yeah. They certainly are. So as we said, we have two interviews on this show. We're going to be speaking with uh, Israeli peace activist Maoz Inan, whose parents were killed on October 7th. But before that, we're going to be speaking with Asa Winstanley. Yes, Asa Winstanley is a journalist with the Electronic Antifada, an author of the best-selling book, Weaponizing Antisemitism, How the Israel Lobby Brought Down Jeremy Corbyn. And we are going to speak to Asa primarily about the reporting he's done about what we know and don't know about October 7th and more and more evidence that Israeli forces killed their own people on October 7th. And Asa has been doing stellar investigative work on this, which we'll speak to him about, along with other claims that have been made by the Israeli military about October 7th that have turned out to be false. Asa also lived in the West Bank for two years, by the way. And I just want to give a little blurb for his book because both Aaron and I, full disclosure, blurb his book. This is what I said about his book, Weaponizing Anti-Semitism. This informative page turner is full of intrigue, a great source for anyone who wants to understand how anti-Semitism is cynically weaponized by people who don't actually care about combating anti-Semitism. Um, and also make sure that you do subscribe at UsefulIdiotsPodcast.com because our uh, extended interview with Asa, our paywalled interview, is extremely interesting. And it's about the way he's been smeared by corporate media. He and other journalists who have uncovered the reality about October 7th have, have been smeared by incredibly embarrassingly bad corporate media, like The Washington Post and The New York Times. All right, let's go to Asa Winstanley. Hey, so Stanley, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. You have been doing a lot of work on October 7th and specifically what we know and don't know about Israel firing on its own people. 
there have been a series of revelations that have come out in Israel that are not very well known inside uh, the United States, especially because the media doesn't really cover it. What to you are some of the most significant revelations that have come out so far? Israel, I mean, the, the latest one is simply that the Israeli high command, the Israeli military's supreme command on October 7th, reactivated uh, a standing order in Israeli military circles known as the Hannibal Directive, which allows Israeli forces to fire on their own people. Um, and this, this, I mean, this, this is a, it's a long-standing directive, Hannibal Directive, uh, which was um, established in 1986. But this is the first, uh, October 7th is the, the first known occasion that it's happened, that it seems to have targeted uh, civilians, Israeli civilians, rather than soldiers. And that, I mean, if that sounds crazy, I mean, it kind of is in a way, but the logic of it, such as it is, is that they want to stop the Palestinian or Lebanese fighters from capturing, taking Israelis captive, because those Israelis can then be used as leverage in prisoner swap deals, which end up releasing Palestinians from Israeli, uh, Palestinians or Lebanese or whoever it is from Israeli prisons. And, and this is what happened in the case of the, the Gilad Shalit um, exchange, if you remember. Um, Gilad Shalit, uh, an Israeli soldier, was captured by Palestinian fighters in Gaza in, in 2009. And it, in the end, I mean, he was held for years in Gaza treated quite well by all accounts um, and in the end he was released in a prisoner swap which cost the Israelis 1,000 Palestinian prisoners who were released um, including um, I believe it was in that release uh, Yahya Sinwar who is the leader of Hamas in, in Gaza now and so you know it, it what uh, it, I mean, there's been so many revelations that have come out actually in the Israeli press about this. And um, it's kind of staggering. Like it takes like for the mainstream media to, to avoid this. I mean, they've been studiously ignoring it. There's, there's so much evidence of the Hannibal Directive taking place. But the latest revelations are about a new, there's a new article uh, in the Israeli, Israeli um, newspaper, the, their weekend supplement, of the Israeli newspaper Yediot Ahronot, which was released the weekend before last um, by two journalists, uh, Ronan Bergman, who actually is a New York Times journalist as well, and has written several um, high profile books, sympathetic books about Israeli intelligence services, including Rise and Kill First, uh, and uh, Yarav Zetun. Um, and what this piece says, it confirms that the Hannibal Directive was reactivated. And they say it was actually reactivated. They're very specific. They say it was reactivated at midday on the 7th of October and that um, 70 cars were destroyed, not by Palestinians, but by Israeli um, drones, helicopter gunships, or tank fire. So it's it's the kind it's it's it confirms what we've been saying all along. It confirms what we've been reporting all along with the electronic intifada. You know, uh, uh, it's been studiously ignored by the mainstream media. But there's been, you know, as you know, Aaron, um, your colleague at the Grey Zone, Max Blumenthal, has also been one of the few of us covering this, um, along with a couple of other websites, Mondo Weiss and the Cradle. But you know, outside of us the mainstream media in the West has been really ignoring this fact. 
and it actually says in the, i mean we got that it was a, it's a really long piece and it's actually quite significant historically and it's, it's very sympathetic to israel i mean it, it would be you know it's this is not a sort of an anti he's an anti-israeli journalist or anti-zionist or whatever they're not critical journalists in that way but they they do a a, a, a fair job of reporting you know um and um what it actually says is it as i said it reveals you know we we saw these images of these cars destroyed of um, you know and these were cars driven by palestinian fighters with israeli captives um for the most part inside them and they were being targeted by the israelis and they were blown up and an undetermined number of these casualties were then later included in this death toll, but you know, maintained by the Israelis, saying that these were uh, Israeli civilians killed by Palestinians. Well, you know, this is confirmation that that is not true. That 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 these were so-called friendly fire incidents. And in their article, it says, um, it says, quote. It is not clear at this stage how many of the captives were killed due to the operation of this order, that is the, the Hannibal Directive, and quote, at least in some of these cases, everyone in the vehicle was killed. It's a really significant new piece, which has confirmed a lot of what we've been reporting about this. And it's interesting because, as you said, this piece is not, you know, it's sympathetic to to Israel, obviously. Uh it was published in, as you pointed out, uh, Yedioth Aronoth. It, it's supplement seven days. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to quote from the first, from the opening of it, which you guys uh, uh, on Electronic Intifada uh, had translated. On the morning of October 7th, some of the most impressive tales of heroism and self-sacrifice in the history of the country were written, but so too was a long series of failures, mishaps, and chaos in the army. So again, it's it's it seems in this way it's like you know kind of fair and balanced. Uh, it's not it's not coming from an anti-Israel publication, and they're praising some of the responses, but also indicting many of the responses. And I also thought it was interesting you pointed out that they do translate this this newspaper will translate their articles into English, but this one wasn't translated into English. Yeah, and there may not be anything in that. It may just be because it's um, a long article. Yeah. It could just be that, but I, I don't know. I rather suspect that it, it may be it, it, at least one of the reasons why it wasn't published was just because of the nature of it, that it, it reflects quite badly on the Israeli military. Yeah, but even without my nefarious conspiracy theory, it's just, you know, <laughs> it's significant that it has not been because that, of course, yeah. means that it hasn't been picked up as much by the media, but also as you are implying or stating you know, if the media were interested in finding out what happened, I mean, Electronic Intifada had someone who's a native Hebrew speaker uh, translate it. Other places have translated yeah, um, it. We've seen it. sort of, um, it was interesting, like when this article came out, it was previewed the, 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 the day before the weekend, which is, you know, the day, which is a Thursday. The weekend starts in um, on Friday in Israel. People were sharing... Uh, screenshots of the the kind of preview article of it online straight away um, based on like a machine translation. Right. Um, but we got, you know, those are not always accurate. So we got a, um, yeah, we got Dina Shunra, who's kind of is our, is our long, long-term um, 
Hebrew translator. She's a professional Hebrew translator, um, and she she was brought up in in Israel. Um, although she she doesn't live there anymore, but um, she actually spent the whole weekend translating it because yeah. um, uh, it, it's a very long article and um, it's it's incredibly significant and people can read. Well, we we actually published the full translation just for reference at the end of the article, so people can read it in full and make up their own minds. And Hannibal is someone, a figure who, uh, it's called the Hannibal Directive because Hannibal is someone who, under the Roman Empire, rather than, I guess, submitting, uh, committed suicide. Hannibal was a a, a general of Carthage. So Carthage was, the the, in in ancient history, was um, the great, enemy or sort of the the nemesis of the roman empire and he you know he of the the elephants hannibal who um reputedly rode the elephants across the alps but the point is that it, he in history he is said to have as you said he is said to have poisoned himself rather than be captured alive um by the romans so it cannot be a coincidence that it was it was named this and there is this kind of Strand and again, uh, this—I mean, this is something um, Max Blumenthal has written about. There's this strand in Israeli society, um, this kind of—I don't know—that some people have called it a death cult or uh, this kind of suicidal. Uh, that's maybe not quite the right word for it, but a kind of suicidal impulse in a way because the the graduation. For another example, is how is is Masada. I mean, if, if the myth of Masada, which you know, I'm sure you're both famous with, but uh, um, familiar with. But the Israeli soldiers at their graduation are taken to Masada, which is reputed to be in in mythology is reputed to be this last stand of Jewish zealots to the Roman Empire. And so the idea is that you know, and they say when they graduate there is um, Masada will never fall again. So. You know, the, the implication being that we'd rather commit suicide than be taken alive kind of thing. Which and is so, what happened at Masada, right, according to the myth? According to, yeah. So the Hannibal director, I mean, it, it seems that, you know, it, it looks, I mean, according to this article, it seems like it happened, it was, it was soldiers on the ground or, or pilots who decided to do this. They decided to just because they'd been trained in this doctrine, the Hannibal Directive. Um, it happened in a kind of um, on-the-ground sort of grassroots way. And then soon after that, at midday, there was this specific order from the what's called the PIT, which is the Israeli um, military's high command in an, in an underground bunker below Tel Aviv, um, that... They, that all units of the Israeli military were permitted to operate the Hannibal Directive because a midday was the moment, according to this Bergman Zetun article, midday was the time when the vid- the first videos of the Israeli captives started being released. And this is another incredible aspect of this um, article because it shows how um, the, the Palestinian military assault on military targets on October the 7th it shows how incredibly successful it was because they, the, this this high command, the pit, so called, 
they didn't have they didn't really know what was going on and it was only by looking at it was only by looking online really that they could see what was happening so they according to this article they were they were um uh were relying on telegram channels in large part partly israeli telegram channels but also um hamas telegram channels and that's how they saw um these uh, Israeli cap the videos of these Israeli captives. So they probably saw them emerge around about the same time as us. And the reason for this uh, intelligence failure was that had that the Palestinian fighters had targeted the communications infrastructure, and they deliberately um, targeted the the the, uh, the 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 communications masts and aerials and so forth around the military bases um, when they broke out of Gaza. And so the high command was in the dark. One more thing about, sorry, Hannibal, is that I, uh, and Masada, I do think it's interesting that according to the Masada legend, which has been challenged by archaeologists, but according to the legend or the mythology around it, it's not just that they committed suicide rather than submit to the Romans, but that the men gathered together, um, decided that they would kill themselves, but also each man killed his own wife and children. Huh which is hmm. we're supposed to celebrate all this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I have to admit, I, I've had the misfortune of being taken on the Masada tour as a young North American Jewish person. And, you know, it, it was really corny and uh, we're, it's supposed to be a very emotional thing. Like you're, you hike up early in the morning and they take you there and you're supposed to feel this connection to this place. Like the, the sacrifice was done for us and it's really corny and obviously <laughs> a fantasy Dangerous. as well yeah, yeah. It's interesting i hadn't thought of that part of, of the they I, I i'd forgotten that actually so it's interesting you bring that up katie that um they killed the you know uh, allegedly uh, how how true these things are is questionable yeah. but that the, the, they also killed their wives and children and um you see some of that rhetoric you saw some of that rhetoric come out around the 7th of october i mean if you remember do you remember this um I mean, I, I, this guy Thomas Hand. I don't know if you saw the the video of that. Um, his daughter Emily Hand was um, yeah. captured captured by um, Palestinian fighters on October seventh, and there was this famous or infamous interview with her father Thomas Hand, who's a settler from Ireland by the look of it. Um, and um, in this uh, sort of uh, tear jerking interview with uh, Clarissa Ward of CNN. He said when he heard his daughter was dead, wrongly as it turned out, thankfully, he heard from the Israeli military that his daughter was dead. He said yes and cheered because if you know about what happens to you in Gaza, it's worse than death. And he was very tearful and very, you know, he sincerely seemed to right. believe this, right? And, I, you know, thankfully it turned out that she was alive and she was later released in um in the in in during released by the Palestinian fighters during the the brief uh, pause in fighting that took place in November, but you know th th I mean that's kind of a, a, an example of this this kind of ideology kind of seeping through. And I, I saw another example of that which I wrote about in another article where there was um, I think it was in Kibbutz Be'eri, um, but there was a, there was another man who said that he had. He, in, in an account, his name was Oyelin, um, and he was the son of a, of a local politician in, I believe, in Kibbutz area. It may have been one of those communities near Gaza. 
one of these Israeli settlements near the Gaza Strip. And he said that he and his wife had discussed during the assault that if uh, by the, by the Palestinians that if Hamas had come to them, he and his wife both agreed that he would take a kitchen knife and stab stab oh his God. wife. And this is what he was saying to um, Israeli media. So there is this kind of uh, I don't know suicidal cult really embedded in Zionism. Um, and in the Israeli state. And so, yeah, it, I mean, it's, um, it, and, and the thing as well that's really, I mean, it should be emphasized about the Hannibal Directive is that it's not over. Like it wasn't just something that was just happening on the 7th of October. They're still kind of doing it in Gaza, right? Because they're bombing everything, even right. when they know yep. that there are Pal Israeli captives there. Leave aside all the Palestinian, 25,000 Palestinian civilians they've massacred. They know Israelis captives are there and they're still shooting, bombing and killing them. And it seems like it's starting to seem like, you know, the, the, the political leaders of Israel do not want those captives to come home alive. Well, it's so ironic because there's so much propaganda about Muslims, Arabs, Palestinians, you know, which a lot of people use those terms interchangeably, mistakenly. Um, that they are death cults, that they don't value life, that they value martyrdom. And as yeah. you're pointing out, and as we know, I mean, it's, it's, it's insane that this country that was founded allegedly to protect Jews and save Jews and protect Jewish life from extermination. It's just insane to see that they're not doing everything that they can to get the hostages out you know, this is this is their shtick that they do everything to save Jewish life. We know that they're fine killing Palestinians, but their thing is that they're supposed to care about Jewish life. And to see them, as we're discussing, actually bomb the places where these hostages are or open fire on them, which we saw them do. Right. As they were holding, you know, white flags. Yeah. Um, and it's just such projection. And so it's it's like it's kind of delusional. Um, and, you know, that that I'm, I'm not saying there, there weren't atrocities committed on October 7th, but there the, the idea that because this this girl was had been kidnapped, as his father suggested, she'd be you know subjected to torture is kind of contradicted by the what we see when these hostages have been released. And, you know, there's that girl who was released. It wasn't just her. She had her dog with her, you know. She's right. able to keep her not just herself alive, but her dog alive. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just really stunning. Yeah, there's a lot of projection going on there. Absolutely. Um, people are, have been talking about that a lot. I mean, yeah, I mean, look, being taken captive is going to be a scary experience. Course, and there's yeah. absolutely no doubt about it. But um, from the accounts that we've seen of the captives that have been released, they've been treated well from what we can see. Certainly better than how Palestinians are treated mm. uh, yeah. in Israeli prisons. Hey, so let me ask you, when it comes to October 7th, somebody might hear what you're talking about, read your reporting, um, you know, acknowledge that Israeli forces may have killed their own people, but they might say, all right, well, so what? It was Hamas that attacked. Uh, they killed civilians. They took civilians hostage. So yes, in the crossfire, Israel killed some of its own people. But, but what does that really matter if it was Hamas that attacked first? So how would you respond to that? Well, what I would say was, is that it matters because the, the justification that is being used for this genocide that's taking place in Gaza right now is that that the um, attacks of 
of 7th of October were uniquely evil as it's been put forward that they were, you know, deliberately targeting and killing civilians um, and that it wasn't a military assault. You know, there was no rational, it was just killing for the sake of killing. There was no rational goals they wanted to achieve. And so I think it matters, you know, it matters because the the, the idea is that um, Palestinians are just killing Israelis, civilians and just killing for the sake of it. And that these figures that are put out, you know, at first it was 1,400 Palestinians who have said, uh, 1,400 Israelis that they claimed were killed by the Palestinians. And then that was later reduced to um, 1,200. And and now it's it seems to be, if you read some Israeli reports, it's um, they say they use this term more than 1,000. And so, uh, um, you know, as you look at the the, the figures of the, the the death toll, more and more you see that more and more of those people killed were actually uh, not civilians. Like, there's another example in this this uh, article where it says that the the Shin Bet, Israel's domestic intelligence agency, that its director ordered all anyone with weapons training, anyone with a weapon to hand to actually take part in the fighting and to go down south. Uh, and uh, apparently 10, 10 Chimbet officers were killed in that on during the battles. Uh, now that's significant because if, if you look at the, the figures, which look, for example, in um, Haaretz, which maintains this database of, of the dead, the database is a bit confusing because it kind of blurs together Israeli soldiers who died invading the Gaza Strip since then in the ground assault with the Israelis who were killed um, on the 7th of October and in the immediate days after. So it's a little bit confusing, but some of it, the figures do include dates when they were when they were dead, when they were killed. And um, it, if you if you search through that. If you do, because there is, you can in that database, you can do a tax search. And if you search for Shin Bet, you can see three of the dead who are, actually are described in that database as Shin Bet officers. And that's interesting because what one of them, none of them, you, you can break down the, the dead. There's filters, you can apply filters of civilian, military, police, um, and emergency services, which is a bit ambiguous. Um, but uh, at least on the surface, sounds like it's civilians. Well, all the Shin Bet officers are either civilian, quote unquote, or um, emergency services. So, you know, that shows that some of these alleged civilians were actually armed men who were taking part in the fighting on the day. So, you know, it's, um, I think it's significant and facts like this do matter. Yeah, and it's also important because Israel has been caught lying about multiple other claims from October 7th right. in terms of yeah. putting out atrocity propaganda, talking about dozens of beheaded babies that turned out Absolutely. to be false. Yeah. Uh, and that makes it all the more important to get to the truth of what actually happened on October 7th. And that's not to deny that Palestinian militants executed civilians. Some of that is on tape. So that happened. But the question is, why wasn't Israel content just with showing what is demonstrably true why did it have to go ahead and put out all these false atrocity claims about dozens of beheaded babies and accordingly is it then also possibly exaggerating the number of civilians that were killed by palestinians to cover up for the fact that some were killed by israeli forces and 
you know, on this note about uh, fake claims by Israel, let's turn to another fact check from an Israeli uh, media outlet. This is Israeli uh, Channel 13, who just put out a video uh, debunking claims put put up by the Israeli military about some of the alleged atrocities committed by Hamas. Watch the following footage of the Kafir Brigade commander from Channel 14. We arrived in Kibbutz Beri, and there I encounter two main images of the battle. Apropos of the enemy's brutality, one is a nursery school with innocent children. They were butchered, killed. You see the children inside the house. Eight babies, eight babies died. And another image that caught my attention is when I saw Jenya, may she rest in peace, an elderly woman from Kibbutz Berry, and I see the number engraved on her arm. And you say she went through the Holocaust in Auschwitz and in the end died in Kibbutz Berry. That's not something that you can't even understand it. And now we go back to the Israeli journalist who says, well, no eight babies were killed in Berry. According to the kibbutz spokesperson, and there's no woman named Jenya in Berry. And watch some more footage from not long ago of a soldier speaking. And now an Israeli soldier says, there were also children here, babies, who were hanged on a laundry line, really, in one line. It was a very hard to see. When I saw it, it shocked me. You don't really understand what you're seeing in front of your eyes. Is it a picture or is it really reality? It's very, very hard to understand. And now back to the Israeli journalist who says, Baskila is talking about a supposed event in Kafar Aza. But in Kafar Aza, they made it clear long ago that this event simply didn't happen. By the way, he said the things, he was told that it didn't happen in a tour of foreign news journalists who came there. And pay attention to what the police spokesman said to the foreign media not long ago. Pay attention. And the spokesperson says, a pregnant woman cut open. The things that are happening are so sick. This is not a Netflix show. It's not a cable news show. None of that. No, this is real life. And back to the Israeli journalist. No, this also didn't happen. So many terrible, cruel things happened. Some of the most cruel things that can be done to a human being on 7th of October. Why were things that didn't happen said? So there we go. Uh, That's an example of you have three Israeli officials, soldiers, on camera, caught lying through their teeth. And that kind of debunking you will not see in U.S. media. You won't see it in U.K. media. You do see it in Israel. And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to UsefulIdiotsPodcast.com. That was a great discussion. It was very good. And if you want the full interview with Aso and Stanley, go to UsefulIdiotsPodcast.com, where we get into more uh, Israeli military fabrications, and we talk about a post, an article in the Washington Post that smeared both Asa, the Electronic Intifada, and uh, the Gray Zone, uh, and specifically a, an article there by Max Blumenthal. And now we turn to our interview with Mao Zinon, who is an Israeli peace activist whose parents were tragically killed on October 7th. Maoz, Inon, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Also, obviously, want to offer our condolences to you for your loss. Um, 
can you tell people to the extent you're comfortable, obviously, um, about what happened to your you your family on October seventh? Yes, of course. Um, um, first, I will start that uh, I was born forty years forty eight years ago in Kibbutz Niram. It's about a kilometer and a half uh, of the Gaza border. Uh, my boss grandparents were Zionist pioneers immigrating to Palestine under the British mandate at the 1930s something, founding two kibbutzim in the Negev. And when my parents got married, they moved to live at my father's house, at my father's home in kibbutz in Niram, where they raised my three sisters, my young brother and myself. And at the age of 14, we moved to Netiv Asara. It's another small Israeli community, about 1,000 people, just touching the border, the Gaza border from the north side. Uh, and on uh, October the 7th, uh, I woke up in my house in Binyamina and uh, I watched the WhatsApp still from bed, uh, my WhatsApp messages, and I saw that uh, my dad wrote in the family group that there are sirens, alarm, missiles, shooting, a lot of noise, and they locked the house and they are inside the safe room. As crazy as it might sound, it's normal. It's happening every few months or once a year at, at least. So I said, okay, it's another, we have another, something is coming. Uh, but I went uh, usually, like usually to make coffee uh, for my wife and for myself. And while making the coffee, I saw in the news uh, that there is a Hamas invasion to the neighborhood, neighboring Israeli communities to the border. And this is something I never uh, remembered uh, that happened before. And it, of course, it never happened. So I said, wow, I better call the dad. So at 7.40, I called him, and he said exactly what he wrote. They are in the safe room, a lot of noise, shooting, alarms, sirens, and uh, that his and mom are in the safe room. I could hear my mom in the background. Uh, so I just told him, tell mom I love her, I love you, and I'll talk to you soon. And keep watching on the news and seeing the uh, wall has been fallen and uh, Hamas trucks in the road which is like the nearest town. I, I know it so well. I said, wow, like I was really shocked. And I said, I should call that again. And it was 7.45. And this time there was no answer. So I called my three sisters who live in Israel and my brother who, who lives in London. Uh, and we tried to call them and their neighbors. There was no answer from no one. We hoped or wished it was a... Uh, electricity failure or uh, cellular reception that is is down uh, but we said it's better we group together uh, with the eight grown uh, grandchildren from the age of 12 to 19 so we grouped at uh, my sister house at around 11 Saturday morning October the 7th trying to reach them and when we were able to reach the neighbors and then they were whatsapping us from their uh, uh, closet or uh, like safe rooms, not cannot talk, really short messages. Uh, we just told them on, on uh, WhatsApp that we, j we wanted to know what's happening. We don't need a delegation or official uh, something. We just want to know what's going on. And uh, five in the afternoon, we were able to reach uh, the security office of Netiva Sarah. 
And he told us that my parents' house is burned to ashes with two bodies inside. Can you tell us a bit about your parents? Yes. Uh, first, they were loving and supporting parents for my sister, my brother, and myself. And my father was 78, my mom 76. They were in the prime of their life. They were all over the place. Uh, my father was a, a agronomist consultant, uh, working from north to south. He was probably number one expert in Israel for wheat, uh, uh, sunflower, uh, sunflower, corn, chickpeas, watermelon, working full time. He was uh, very active walking uh, on the beach at least five kilometers a day, practicing Pilates uh, daily. And my mom, she was an artist. And since I remember, she was doing art. And even in the, in the early 80s, she was doing art from garbage, what now is so trendy. Mm -hmm. So I remember like every summer, she would uh, ask us to, to keep all the uh, ice cream stick. So we would keep all the ice cream stick. And at the end of the summer, uh, she, uh, we sat around the table and she gave us uh, uh, colors so we can paint those Arctic sticks. And then she glued them together and framed it. And it was on the wall of the house till October the 7th. And in the recent year, she was a mandala painter and also teacher. She had a group of students from children, uh, youth, adult and elderly that would come every week uh, for a mandala lesson. And she refused to take money from her students. And uh, her students argue with her that she must and they reach an agreement that each one will pay as much as he can. And she was also swimming every day, uh, practicing yoga. And uh, both of them were very loving and uh, existing in their grandchild uh, with their grandchildren. Again, the three young one lives in London and uh, the adults live in Israel. So they are very loving and very active. And what do you have to say about the way Israel has responded to October 7th? Oh, I have a lot. <laughs> I have a lot to say. So I'll start that we, uh, that uh, all, already on October the 7th in the evening, we've decided we're going to start the Shiva without a rabbi uh, or, or official uh, announcement that they are, they are dead. So it was the first Shiva of the war. And each day of the Shiva... And, and sh can you just ex explain for people who don't know what, sh as sure. Americans will say, a Shiva uh, shiva. is? Shiva is the Jewish way of mourning. It's like a wake ceremony that is going day after day for seven days. And Shiva is seven in Hebrew. So when all your friends, your parents, your, uh, my parents' friend, many phone calls, messages, thousands of people came uh, to pay their condolences, hug and cry with us. Uh, so every morning we started with just uh, my brother and sisters sitting together and during the evening with the grandchild. And I think it was the second or the third day that we say that from our personal strategy, we want to make a universal, universal message. And our message is, no, for, you shall not revenge. We are not calling, asking for revenge the otherwise. You shall not revenge. So this is was the first thing we said already during the Shiva, and definitely we are saying it now. And after we, we end the Shiva, it was Friday afternoon, 
And after a week of crying, I'm a very good, I know how to cry and I can make other and assist other to cry. It's very, uh, it's very important to cry. So suddenly my uh, mind become very clear and sharp. And uh, I told myself, Moz, you are, you, are, you are on a mission. You are on a mission. And your, your mission is to bring the hostages back, to stop the war, to do what you can so this extreme right radical government will resign. And the most important mission is to create hope, to convince yourself, your, your family and all the others that the future is going to be a better future. And going back to your question is what the Israeli government is doing now is exactly the opposite. They are doing everything that they can in their power to make our future miserable for Israelis and Palestinians, that we live on our sword forever. And that this cycle of blood, of death, of revenge, of fear that is going on for a century now will continue. They are doing exactly the opposite than what is needed to bring security, security to the people of Israel and also equality and justice to the people in Palestine. And what about their, uh, how do you see their role um, in preventing or not preventing October 7th? I, I see the government of Israel accountable for October the 7th for betraying in our, my parents, but 18 more members of my parents' community and 100 more uh, uh, victims uh, from the, the uh, communities uh, next uh, the borders. Because the state of Israel was founded and established under uh, the rule or the message, it, it shall never happen again. It shall never happen again that there will be programs and Jewish victims uh, in a massive numbers. This is why Israel, the state of Israel was established. And they, they uh, failed. They failed to, uh, in their promise. The state of Israel failed in fulfilling its most, uh, its number one promise. And, and, I, and of course, Hamas is also to blame. But Hamas is a terrorist, fundamental, extreme organization. And his, his aim and his motivation and way of acting is to kill innocent people. So Hamas was doing what is expected from a terrorist organization. And the, the state of Israel and the Israeli government failed in doing what they were expected. But from that, I want the lesson I learned during the last three months. And this one, I learned many lessons from peace activists that are working on the ground for many years. And one of the most amazing and admirable peace activists is Hamze Awawde. He's from Ramallah, Palestinian from Ramallah. And what I learned from Hamze was his words, I'm willing to forgive about the past. I'm willing to forgive about the present, but I won't forget myself and no one else if we, if we won't build a better future. So I'm willing to forgive. I'm willing to forgive everyone for everything, for the past and for the present. But I won't forget no one if we won't build a better future. When you call Hamas a terrorist organization, I mean, do you think October 7th would have happened if 
Palestinians weren't occupied and besieged by Israel? Again, I can I cannot tell how the past will be in under under different circumstances. And also to, for me, I don't care about the past anymore. I do, I really don't care. I don't care who started it. I don't care how many numbers of victims. Uh, uh, I'm not counting victims. I'm not cal- counting innocent people. All innocent people who died are human beings that wasn't supposed. And I'm crying for the death. I start crying for them at the beginning. I cried so much for all the innocent life that will be lost during this war. So who started it? Who's to blame? I'm not there. I'm not in, in, in this uh, game or blaming game. We are all to blame because we haven't done enough. But I'm looking into the future. I'm just looking into the future. And in the recent years, I've been working a lot of, with narratives, Palestinian and Israeli narrative. I, I was doing tour in Nazareth, tours in Nazareth, which is the largest Palestinian city within Israel. Nazareth is in the Galilee. All the uh, population in Nazareth are Palestinian with Israeli ID. One, one out of five citizens in Israel, not the West Bank, not in Gaza, one out of five is from the Palestinian minority. This is a huge number. It's a big minority. So I was doing tours in Nazareth, and I, I was emphasizing the importance of knowing the other side narrative. There, it's a completely different narrative. The Palestinian and the Israelis, it's a completely different narrative. So just by knowing the other side narrative, you don't need, we don't need to agree. And definitely there is no point in arguing, because if we'll argue another hundred years of this bloody cycle will continue. But if we know the other side narrative, we can step forward. So I want to step forward. And just before before the, um, focusing on uh, on moving forward, I, I know that I had read something where you said your parents were concerned about what was happening. Um, I guess two, two questions, like very recently, right? They were concerned they saw things happening and heard gunshots. Was, was that the day of, or did you, or were you, were they um, saying stuff before in the days before? So for my parents and also their community, they weren't living in fear. They weren't living in fear. They, they trusted the IDF, the Israeli security system, the intelligent and the government for protecting them. The wall that was surrounding uh, their village was the highest wall probably human being ever built and the deepest wall human have ever built and with the most highly sophisticated and invested and, and, uh, and pricey uh, a security system. So they weren't living in fear, but there were many uh, signs that something is going to happen and many from the, the communities uh, try to allow and and uh, and show, tell about those signs, but everyone ignored them. So there are, uh, I think it was Monday or Tuesday before October the seventh that Hamas was uh, doing a, tra- a, a training day that they all said it never happened before. So so many like and their uh, the flying machinery that they used to to go over the fence they were doing it, but the just paragliders. on the paraglides, the engine paraglides, 
they were training with them on the like two, two, 10 meters from uh, uh, the Moshav uh, uh, fence and wall, but on the Palestinian, on the Gaza side, but they are using them and flying with them and training. And they were uh, training with the uh, heavy firing, but to the sea, <laughs> not to the uh, west, not to the east. And on, on Saturday, they were just doing the real thing, which they practiced for so long. So there are uh, a lot of warning, but everyone ignored. And and people on uh, did your parents and their friends tell authorities, tell police about it, yes. or they they told everyone, and everyone said it's okay. Hamas is training. That was the official answer. There were also uh, electricity uh, breakdown in the last six months. That for few hours there was no electricity in the com- in the in the uh, community. So they called the Israeli electricity company, they called the military, they called the police, and everyone said, it's not us. No one knew what, how it, why and what, it's, what is happening. And then after a few hours, the electricity came back. So, so of course, it fell down again on October the 7th morning. And, and I'm sorry, this is very sensitive, but have, you, have, have the authorities given you any indication of how your parents were killed? And what I'm wondering here is, there are testimonies now from survivors of October 7th who've spoken about Israeli tanks uh, firing at homes, at, for example, at Kibbutz Berry. And there was another investigation recently from Yediot Aronot, the Israeli newspaper, about how Israeli forces fired on vehicles that contained hostages uh, from October 7th. So do you have any clarity on on what happened to your parents, how they died? So first, I don't read newspaper. Personally, so but I do know about the cases you are talking about, and I don't trust the Israeli government or military to really investigate. I, I personally, as a citizen of Israel, someone who lived here and was born here, I don't believe there the, what the, the outcome of those investigation if they will ever make any investigation. But I'll tell you another thing that I I, I was asked much more uh, direct question from a Palestinian friend, a very close friend that knew my parents very well. And she asked me, Maoz, maybe, maybe, I just want to raise this question. Maybe what burned your parents' house with your parents inside wasn't a Hamas rocket. Maybe it was a crossfire. So first for me, as an Israeli who just lost his parents, it was very difficult to hear this question. Very difficult. And like she's saying me it didn't it didn't basically she said it didn't happen but then i told her you know what maybe you're right maybe you're right maybe it wasn't the hamas maybe it was a crossfire but what does it matter what does it matter my parents died because because of the palestinian israeli conflict and my mission in life i decided to committed my life for making peace what does it matter who killed them? They were killed because of the conflict. And I'm going to solve and I'm going to bring make peace between the river to the sea. Do you want to join me in my efforts of making peace? Or do we want to question or argue or, or about who started it and who is to blame? So, of course, she said, yes, I want to join you in your efforts. So this is what I'm saying. We didn't need to answer a, a question with an argument. 
let's answer question with uh, something productive, something that will take us forward. And I will have my own narrative that it was the Hamas. If I would think it was the Israeli government, I don't know how I could live. I'm, I'm very honest and open with you. I don't know how I could live if I would know that it was a crossfire. So my narrative is the Hamas. And for her narrative might be different. And again, and it's okay. I'm not going to argue with her. But I'm, I'm going to build a shared future with my Palestinian friend. And this is where I put all my efforts. I know that you've been taking part in protests uh, since October 7th. Um, what have those been like? How have you been treated by police? Uh, and what have you been calling for? So at the beginning, I was still very mad and there was a lot of anger inside of me. Till I learned the lesson from Hamza Awawde that I need to forgive. So we started a, a protest opposite of the Knesset, the Parliament House of Israel, with another uh, newly bereaved family, families from October the 7th. And we started a protest tent and some of the families are there 24-7 with a very, uh, very direct uh, call and, and message that the, uh, the government is accountable and the government must go. And how have you been treated at the protests? Again, the police is playing this as a bereaved family. The police are uh, much more uh, caution than on the normal people, not, not privileged as us. But the government and the police are against and shutting down or canceling protests that are calling for ceasefire, that are calling uh, for empathy with the people in Gaza. Uh, so it's uh, uh, we are definitely feel that the the calls and and uh, for a ceasefire and for stopping the war uh, are being uh, silenced, silenced brutally sometimes. Silence brutally, or with like a, a letters from the police that we cannot help the, the the protest. What did your parents think of the treatment of, of Israel's treatment of Palestinians? Were they concerned that it, something like this would happen? I don't. Again, we were like leaving it uh, the wall, and was so high physically, but also uh, spiritually that. We didn't saw it. It was just there, but we didn't. It wasn't part of the uh, our family dinners, which we had once a week or twice, uh, like a few times a month when we all gathered. It wasn't the topic. It wasn't what we spoke about the situation of Palestinian. And my parents did went to protest against the government, and uh, they were do they were politically actives, but and again and of course I was much much more active. Um, but on family meetings, it wasn't like we discussed. It's not that it, it wasn't a topic. It wasn't on the table, literally. It seems like um, most Israelis are supportive of Israel's response to October seventh. People who haven't even who haven't experienced what you experienced. You experienced loss. Your your parents were killed. And yet you're able to say, not in my name, not in our names, don't, you know, we, we're not calling for revenge. Why do you think it is that you're able to see this and, and so many other people aren't? It's, it's the easiest way for a government or a regime to control the mass, 
the public opinion is by fear, by finding a, a, an enemy, by dehumanizing this enemy. And, and Hamas was doing all in his power to, to, help, to help the Israeli government to dehumanize him uh, and, and the people of Gaza. It's, uh, for me, it's devastating. It's a, it's a, it's a tragedy that like, I see it happening in front of my eyes and I'm, I'm trying to stop it, but I don't have the power. Uh, so this is why I'm, I'm, I'm thankful to you for uh, amplifying my voice. And there is, I'm not alone. There are many, many Israelis, many Israelis that are calling for a diplomatic solution that are calling to stop the war, that understanding that if we'll kill 20,000, 30,000, 40, I ask how many Palestinians do you want to revenge? It won't bring security. It won't bring peace. It just create a call for, to, for revenge from the other side. So there are many Israelis that see it as I see it. But we've been silenced. We've been silenced by the Israeli uh, media by the Israeli uh, uh, press and uh, also um, um, by international uh, community, by international community. They are not coming when ambassadors, uh, the head of the Biden administration are coming to visit Israel and they are coming on a daily basis. They, they are meeting and I, of course, it's very good at meeting the, uh, the family of the hostages but they are not meeting the uh, the peace activists. What do you think of uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu? And do you agree with the widespread criticism that basically he has a political incentive to keep this assault on Gaza going for as long as possible because of the questions he faces about October 7th and also the corruption charges that he faces and wants to avoid? So again, I, I, I want to be modest. But I think I'm the first one who said that, uh, and it was uh, Thomas Friedman wrote it on the New York Times week after I said it. I don't think he heard me, but I have it the uh, record that it's a political war. It's within the Israeli prime minister agenda that will the war will continue forever because it allows him to unite the mass people of Israel around this cause, around this hate and fear and it's within it's serving him and at the same time it, ser it serves the Hamas because Hamas popularity is also rising as much as the war is continuing as much as the suffering and the victims number in Gaza is rising so the war is serving both the, the extremists and we were hijacked by our government and by Hamas that are bringing this region into a, cat a catastrophe. And if we won't stop, it might get much worse. And this is what really frightened me. When I was saying about much worse, it might be the end of Israel as we know it. Uh, and I don't want, like no one could imagine October the 7th, no one can imagine what will happen if this cycle will continue. And I also say before, and I'll, I'll say it now, even though again, I'm now, it's not what I'm dealing with now. I, I don't mind talking about it, but it's not where I am at the moment, that Netanyahu is the worst Jewish leader in the Jewish history. In the Jewish history, is the worst leader ever 
since the beginning of Judaism, about 3,000 years ago, to nowadays, it will be considered as much as humanity will continue, the humankind will, will survive and be on planet Earth, will be considered the worst Jewish leader ever. And, but we're all going to suffer from it. And why do you say that, that he's the worst Jewish leader ever? Because I think he put uh, the, uh, the third uh, Jewish uh, existence in Israel to a risk that might bring to its end. And can you just explain to people who don't know about this, how this war is helping him politically? Yeah, because he, like the opposition, some opposition uh, parties join his coalition, coalition of war. So he's got like, if before he had a majority of 64 against 56, now I think he have like 80 uh, uh, votes against 40. So he have a huge coalition, coalition of war. And they, this, the, the parties in the coalition says that we, they will continue supporting Netanyahu as long as the war continuing. So of course he wants the war to continue. And of course, he don't care and he don't mind about the hostages. There are political hostages in the hands of Netanyahu. He don't want an agreement to, uh, to, to bring them back during a, a, a agreement or a deal. He don't mind. He don't care about them. He just don't care. What do you think Israel could should be doing right now? You've been talking about how you want to look forward. So, so questions, some questions about that. What do you think Israel should be doing right now? If they cared about the hostages, uh, what what would they be doing? If I was the prime minister, <laughs> first I will call for an international summit, peace summit, and and stating that I want to end the the conflict and the blood and the and the blood and the hate between Israelis and Palestinians. And I'm willing to do everything to bring the, this uh, war to an end. So I will completely stop the war. And I'll, I'll, uh, I'll ask for international summit that Israel will lead and call for with all Arab leaders, with the US, with the Europe nation, maybe others. Everyone wants to solve this conflict. And I will start negotiating and threatening the Palestinian authorities, not the Hamas. It was for 20 years, he's been financing the Hamas. Hamas becomes so strong, not uh, from the air, because Netanyahu allowed them to get so strong. And I will strengthen the Palestinian authorities. And I will call the, the people of Palestine and the leaders and the Arab world that Israel has decided that it wants to make peace with them and that they are willing to work very hard and with pure intention to bring it into a two-stage solution, uh, confederation, whatever will be achieved on an equal level in on a negotiation table and not by war, in, in, in the war fields. And I will call the people of Israel at the same time and tell them, and I would use the words the former prime minister from the Likud, Menachem Begin, who was the first ever prime minister from the Likud party, the same party as Netanyahu. And when Menachem Begin welcomed President Sadat of Egypt back in 1979, 
And Egypt, it's also important to understand <clears throat> for Israelis and for, for your uh, listeners, Egypt was 100,000 times stronger than Hamas. She had a Russian uh, military equipment uh, uh, sent by airplanes and ships, including aircraft, including artillery, including anti-aircraft missiles. They were very strong. After only six years after the most devastated war Israel had so far in 73, only six years after, Menachem Begin is welcoming President Sadat of Egypt in Jerusalem. And what Menachem Begin is say, saying, we can prevent the war, but we cannot prevent peace. So if I was the prime minister now, I would say I want to follow the world, the legacy, the heritage of former prime minister from the Likud, from the right le legacy and to go on the path he, he established back in 79. And it's time now to go back to this path and not to the path of war and hate. What do you think a two-state solution would look like? And do you think a one-state solution could ever be possible with equal rights? So I, again, I would say my personal uh, answer is that I don't care. I don't care. It can be one state, it can be 10 states, as long as we live peacefully among each other and as long as we share values. It's like the EU. What does it matter if, they, what does it matter if they, in the EU there will be 20 or 30 or 40 states? It doesn't matter. And again, the EU was founded on the ashes of Europe. It didn't come from, from somewhere, from the uh, outer space. It was founded on the ashes of Europe. And fr between France, France and Germany, there were millions of victims, maybe more, during the two uh, world wars. And now they are partners, they are allies, they are the leaders of the EU. So it's been happened in the past, not that long ago, eight years maybe? So it can be happen here in the Middle East between Israel and Palestine in the Israel and the Arab world. But we need to imagine it. We need to use our political imagination. It's something we stop using definitely here between the river and the sea. We must use our political imagination to imagine a better future based on equality, on justice, of reconciliation, and to start build a plan, strategy plan together, Palestinian Israelis, make the plan and execute it. And when you say this could be the end of Israel, how do you see that even happening? What does that mean? Like there was the first temple back, I don't know, uh, like 2,500 years ago. There was the second temple till uh, 70 after uh, BC. And, and countries, nation uh, are stopping to exist. It, if you look on the world ma global map right. and you go 100 years ago, and you see how, many, how much the borders and states and nation coming up, uh, going, uh, rising and falling. And it can be the fall of Israel. There would be no Israel. But how, how would that happen? Like what, what, what would happen? Like if, you ask me, if you would ask me on October the 6th. Right. So the Hamas will attack. You would ask me, how would it happen? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I cannot forecast it. Right. But like know. things can be much, much better. And this is, we need to make it be better, things can, things can also go really, really worse. So it's up to us to decide.
which way we want to go and to take it. Thank you so much for your time. You've been so generous with your time. Any final words that you want to share about about how, like what concretely needs to happen moving forward? Yeah, yeah thank you. Yeah, I would love to say it, to share it. I, I'm an entrepreneur. I've been uh, initiating more than 20, 20 enterprise, tourism, social, political, and there there, there is a, a methods that run within all my initiatives. Big dream, values, partners, strategy plan, execution, and constant look for meaning. And I become a tourism entrepreneur, and I'm working in the same methods. I have a dream of peace. I have values that I already stated. I think we all agree on them. I'm building partnerships. And now I do want to ask, I want to ask you, do you want to be my partners? Do you want to be my partners in reaching this peace? And this is what the question I ask in all my meetings. And I always still so far got, yes, I'm still waiting for your answer. Katie <laughs> yeah. and Aaron, if you want to be my partners, because I, we need to build partnership, alliance. And now we'll build a strategy plan and we'll execute it. It's the same way as you're building a business or a concept or an idea, taking an idea, making a, a vision into reality. And now I'm building a strategy with many partners, Palestinian, Israelis, and international community. We are sitting now building this strategy and we're gonna execute it and we're gonna make peace in four to six years. And if your listeners and yourself, how can we help? How can we support? There are so many shared initiatives, Jewish and Arabs, Israeli and Palestinian. So many support us just by amplifying our voice, share on social media, Share it to your friends. Invite us. Invite me to speak to you, to your audience. Uh, if it's in uh, universities, a classroom, or a workplace, I'm not alone. We, there are many of us. We are we are uh, uh, giving our hands. We are giving our hands to you and ask you to be our partners in reaching this path. We're not going to be able to do it by ourselves. Thanks so much, Miles. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Very grateful to Maozi Non for sharing his story. I can't imagine how difficult it must be uh, still processing the killing of his parents. And um, he's out there, one of the rare voices in Israel calling for, for peace. And even though there are some areas where, you know, I don't agree with him when it comes to, you know, my conception of the state of Israel. Um, and other matters, I really appreciate that it's very difficult in Israeli society right now to speak out, and he's one of the few people doing it, and uh, he's not letting his tragedy uh, become weaponized to create even more tragedies. Exactly, and it's, it's you know, it's, it's noteworthy that he's someone who has lost people, who lost people on October 7th, and he's not calling for increased bloodshed, um, while you have people who didn't lose anything on October 7th who are. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I hope, uh, I hope he prevails. Um, because if Israel could stop this genocide, I mean, how many people's lives will be saved if it just stopped today and how many people, it's just unfathomable to think about. So, um, very grateful to him for coming on. Yeah, very much. So thank you so much. All right, usefulidiotspodcast.com is our website. Please go there to support the show and get bonus content, and we'll see you next time. 
Thanks so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For extended episodes, bonus content, and our weekly Thursday Throwdown episode, please subscribe at UsefulIdiotsPodcast.com. Support the show for free by subscribing on YouTube, Rumble, and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to rate and review. You can also follow us on Twitter at UsefulIdiotPod. Thanks for supporting independent media. We'll see you next time.